Chapter Five, Part Three of How I Found Livingstone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. How I Found Livingstone. Travels, Adventures, and Discoveries in Central Africa, including four months' residence with Doctor Livingstone, by Sir Henry M. Stanley. Chapter Five, Part Three. Through Ukwere, Ukami, and Udoi to Usagoa. The first, second, and third of April passed, and nothing had we heard or seen of the ever-lagging fourth caravan. In the meanwhile, the list of casualties was being augmented. Besides the loss of this precious time, through the perverseness of the chief of the other caravan, and the loss of my two horses, a pagazi, carrying boat-fixtures, improved the opportunity and deserted. Selim was struck down with a severe attack of ague and fever, and was soon after followed by the cook, then by the assistant cook and tailor, Abdul Kader. Finally, before the third day was over, Bombay had rheumatism, Oledi, Grant's old valet, had a swollen throat, Zaidi had the flux, Kingaroo had the Makonguru, Kamizi, a pagazi, suffered from a weakness of the loins, Vajala had a bilious fever, and before night closed, Makoviga was very ill. Out of a force of twenty-five men, one had deserted, and ten were on the sick list, and the presentment that the ill-looking neighbourhood of Kingaroo would prove calamitous to me, was verified. On the 4th of April, Maganga and his people appeared, after being heralded by musketry shots and horn-blowing, the usual signs of an approaching caravan in this land. His sick men were considerably improved, but they required one more day of rest at Kingaroo. In the afternoon he came to lay siege to my generosity, by giving details of sore Haji Palu's heartless cheats upon him. But I informed him that since I had left Bagamoyo, I could no longer be generous. We were now in a land where cloth was at a high premium, that I had no more cloth than I should need to furnish food for myself and men, that he and his caravan had cost me more money and trouble than any three caravans I had, as indeed was the case. With this counter-statement he was obliged to be content, but I again solved his pecuniary doubts by promising that, if he hurried his caravan on to Unyanyembe, he should have no more cause of complaint. The 5th of April saw the 4th caravan vanish for once in our front, with a fair promise that, however fast we should follow, we should not see them on the hither side of Sinbamweni. The following morning, in order to rouse my people from the sickened torpitude they had lapsed into, I beat an exhilarating alarm on a tin pan with an iron ladle, intimating that a safari was about to be undertaken. This had a very good effect, judging from the extraordinary alacrity with which it was responded to. Before the sun rose we started. The kangaroo villagers were out with the velocity of hawks for any rags or refuse left behind us. The long march to Imbiki, fifteen miles, proved that our protracted stay at Kingaroo had completely demoralized my soldiers and pagazis. Only a few of them had strength enough to reach Imbiki before night. The others, attending the laden donkeys, 
put in an appearance next morning, in a lamentable state of mind and body. Kamizi, the pagazi with the weak loins, had deserted, taking with him two goats, the property tent, and the whole of Uledai's personal wealth, consisting of his visiting dish dashe, a long shirt of the Arabic pattern, ten pounds of beads, and a few fine cloths, which Uledai, in a generous fit, had entrusted to him while he carried the pagazi's load, seventy pounds of booboo beads. This defalcation was not to be overlooked, nor should Kamizi be permitted to return without an effort to apprehend him. Accordingly, Uledai and Faraji were dispatched in pursuit while we rested at Imbiki, in order to give the dilapidated soldiers and animals time to recruit. On the 8th we continued our journey, and arrived at Masua. This march will be remembered by our caravan as the most fatiguing of all, though the distance was but ten miles. It was one continuous jungle, except three interjacent glades of narrow limits, which gave us three breathing pauses in the dire task of jungle travelling. The odour emitted from its fell plants was so rank, so pungently acrid, and the miasma from its decayed vegetation so dense, that I expected every moment to see myself and men drop down in paroxysms of acute fever. Happily this evil was not added to that of loading and unloading the frequently falling packs. Seven soldiers to attend seventeen laden donkeys was entirely too small a number while passing through a jungle. For while the path is but a foot wide, with a wall of thorny plants and creepers bristling on each side, and projecting branches darting across it, with knots of spiky twigs stiff as spike-nails, ready to catch and hold anything above four feet in height, it is but reasonable to suppose that donkeys standing four feet high, with loads measuring across from bale to bale four feet, would come to grief. This grief was of frequent reoccurrence here, causing us to pause every few minutes for rearrangements. So often had this task to be performed, that the men got perfectly discouraged, and had to be spoken to sharply before they set to work. By the time I reached Masua, there was nobody with me and the ten donkeys I drove, but Mabruk the Little, who, though generally stolid, stood to his work like a man. Bombay and Uledi were far behind, with the most jaded donkeys. Shaw was in charge of the cart, and his experiences were most bitter, as he informed me he had expanded a whole vocabulary of stormy abuse known to sailors, and a new one which he had invented ex tempore. He did not arrive until two o'clock next morning, and was completely worn out. Another halt was fixed at Musawa, that we and our animals might recuperate. The chief of the village, a white man in everything but colour, sent me and mine the fattest broad-tailed sheep of his flock, with five measures of matatma grain. The mutton was excellent, unapproachable. For his timely and needful present I gave him two dotai, and amused him with an exhibition of the wonderful mechanism of the Winchester rifle, and my breech-loading revolvers. He and his people were intelligent enough to comprehend the utility of these weapons at an emergency, 
and illustrated in expressive pantomime the powers they possessed against numbers of people armed only with spears and bows by extending their arms with an imaginary gun and describing a clear circle verily said they the wasungu are far wiser than the washenzi what heads they have what wonderful things they make look at their tents their guns their timepieces their clothes and that little rolling thing the cart which carries more than five men key on the tenth recovered from the excessive strain of the last march the caravan marched out of the musua accompanied by the hospitable villagers as far as their stake defence receiving their unanimous quaheris outside the village the march promised to be less arduous than between imbaki and musawa after crossing a beautiful little plain interceded by a dry gully or matonai the route led by a few cultivated fields where the tillers greeted us with one grand unwinking stare as if fascinated soon after we met one of those sights common in part of the world to wit a chain slave gang bound east the slaves did not appear to be in any way downhearted on the contrary they seemed imbued with the philosophic jollity of the jolly servant of martin chuzzlewit were it not for their chains it would have been difficult to discover master from slave the physiognomic traits were alike the mild benignity with which we regarded was equally visible on all faces the chains were ponderous they might have held elephants captive but as the slaves carried nothing but themselves their weight could not have been insupportable the jungle was scant on this march and though in some places the packs met with accidents they were not such as seriously to retard progress by ten a m we were in camp in the midst of an imposing view of green sward and forest domed by a cloudless sky we had again pitched our camp in the wilderness and as is the custom of caravans fired two shots to warn any washenzi having grain to sell that we were willing to trade our next halting place was Kizimo, distant but eleven miles from Musawa, a village situated in a populous district, having in its vicinity no less than five other villages, each fortified by stakes and thornia betis, with as much fierce independence as if their petty lords were so many Perses and Douglases. Each topped a ridge, or a low hummock, with an assumption of his own defiance of the cock on its own dunghill type between these humble eminences and low ridges of land wind narrow vales which are favoured with the cultivation of matama and indian corn behind the village flows the ungarangari river an impetuous stream during the masika season capable of overflowing its steep banks but in the dry season it subsides into its proper status which is that of a small stream of very clear, sweet water. Its course from Kizimo is south-west, then easterly. It is the main feeder of the Kingani River. The bells of Kizimo are noted for their vanity in brass wire, which is wound in spiral rings round their wrists and ankles, and the varieties of style which their hispid heads exhibit, while their poor lords, 
obliged to be contented with dingy torn clouts and split ears, shows what wide sway Asmodeus holds over this terrestrial sphere. For it must have been an unhappy time when the harsh besieged husbands finally give way before their spouses. Besides these brassy ornaments on their extremities, and the various hair-dressing styles, the women of Kizimo frequently wear lengthy necklaces, which run in rivers of colours down their bodies. A more comical picture is seldom presented than that of one of these highly-dressed females, engaged in the homely and necessary task of grinding corn for herself and family. The grinding apparatus consists of two portions— one, a thick pole of hard wood about six feet long, answering for a pestle. The other, a capacious wooden mortar, three feet in height. While engaged in setting his tent, Shaw was obliged to move a small flat stone to drive a peg into the ground. The village chief, who saw him do it, rushed up in a breathless fashion and replaced the stone instantly, then stood on it in an impressive manner. "'indicative of the great importance attached to that stone and location. "'Bombay, seeing Shaw standing in silent wonder at the act, "'volunteered to ask the chief what was the matter. "'This sheikh solemnly answered, with a finger pointing downwards, "'A ganga, whereupon I implored him to let me see what was under the stone. "'With a graciousness quite affecting, he complied. "'My curiosity was gratified.' with the sight of a small whittled stick, which pinned fast to the ground an insect, the cause of a miscarriage to a young female of the village. During the afternoon, Aledai and Faraji, who had been dispatched after the truant Kamizi, returned with him and all the missing articles. Kamizi, soon after leaving the road and plunging into the jungle, where he was mentally tromping in his booty, was met by some of the plundering Washenzi, who were always on the quivive for stragglers, and unceremoniously taken to their village in the woods, and bound to a tree, preparatory to being killed. Kamizi said that he had asked them why they tied him up, to which they answered that they were about to kill him, because he was a Maguana, whom they were accustomed to kill as soon as they were caught. But Iledai and Faraji, shortly after coming upon the scene, both well armed, put an end to the debates upon Kamizi's fate, by claiming him as an absconding pagazi from the Musongu's camp, as well as all the articles he possessed at the time of capture. The robbers did not dispute the claim for the pagazi, goats, tent, or any other valuable found with him, but intimated that they deserved a reward for apprehending him. The demand being considered just, a reward to the extent of two doti and a fundo, or ten necklaces of beads, was given. Kamizi, for his desertion and attempted robbery, could not be pardoned without first suffering punishment. He had asked at Bagamoyo, before enlisting in my service, an advance of five dollars in money, and had received it, and a load of bubu beads, no heavier than a pagazi's load had been given him to carry. He had, therefore, no excuse for desertion. Lest I should overstep prudence, however, in punishing him, 
I convened a court of eight pagazis and four soldiers to sit in judgment, and asked them to give me their decision as to what should be done. Their unanimous verdict was that he was guilty of a crime almost unknown among the Wanyamwezi pagazis, and as it was likely to give a bad repute to the Wanyamwezi carriers, they therefore sentenced him to be flogged with the great master's donkey-whip, which was accordingly carried out to poor Kamisi's crying sorrow. On the twelfth the caravan reached Masoadai, on the Ungarangari River. Happily for our patient donkeys, this march was free from all the annoying troubles of the jungle. Happily for ourselves also, for we had no more the care of the packs and the anxiety about arriving at camp before night. The packs, once put firmly on the backs of our good donkeys, they marched into camp, the road being excellent, without a single displacement or cause for one impatient word, soon after leaving Kizimo. A beautiful prospect, glorious in its wild nature, fragrant with its numerous flowers and variety of sweetly smelling shrubs, among which I recognized the wild sage, the indigo plant, etc., terminated only at the foot of Kira Peak and Sister Cones, which marked the boundaries between Adoe and Akami, yet distant twenty miles. Those distant mountains formed a not unfit background to this magnificent picture of open plain, forest patches, and sloping lawns. There was enough of picturesqueness and sublimity in the blue mountains to render it one complete whole. Suppose a Byron saw some of these scenes. He would be inclined to poetize in this manner. Morn dawns, and with its stern Idoe's hills, Dark Urigam's rocks, and Kira's peak, Robed in half a mist, Bedewed with various rills, Arrayed in many a dune and purple streak. When drawing near the valley of the Ungarangari, Granite knobs and protuberances of dazzling quartz showed their heads above the reddish soil. Descending the ridge where these rocks were prominent, we found ourselves in the sable loam deposit of the Ungarangari, and in the midst of teeming fields of sugar-cane and matama, Indian corn, mahogany, and gardens of curry, egg, and cucumber plants. On the banks of the Ungarangari flourished the banana, and overtopping it by seventy feet and more, shot up the stately Mrapramusai. The rival in beauty of the Persian Shinar and Abyssian plain. Its trunk is straight and calmly enough for the mainmast of a first-class frigate, while its expanding crown of leafage is distinguished from all others by its density and vivid greenness. There was a score of varieties of the larger kind of trees, whose far-extending branches embraced across the narrow but swift river. The depressions of the valley and the immediate neighbourhood of the river were choked with young forests of tiger-grass and stiff-reeds. Masaudai is situated on a higher elevation than the average level of the village, and consequently looks down upon its neighbours, which number a hundred and more. It is the western extremity of Ukwere, on the western bank of the Ungarangari. The territory of the Wakami commences. We had to halt one day at Musaudai, 
because the poverty of the people prevented us from procuring the needful amount of grain. The cause of this scantiness in such a fertile and populous valley was that the number of caravans which had preceded us had drawn heavily from their stores for the upmarches. On the 14th we crossed the Ungarengari, which here flows southerly to the southern extremity of the valley, where it bends easterly as far as Kisimo. After crossing the river here, fordable at all times and only twenty yards in breadth, we had another mile of the valley with its excessively moist soil and rank growth of grass. It then ascended into a higher elevation and led through a forest of Maparamusai, tamarind, tamarisk, acacia, and the blooming mimosa. This ascent was continued for two hours, when we stood upon the spine of the largest ridge, where we could obtain free views of the wooded plain below, and the distant ridges of Kisimo, which we had but lately left. A descent of a few hundred feet terminated in a deep but dry matonai with a sandy bed, on the other side of which we had to regain the elevation we had lost, and a similar country opened into view until we found a newly made boma with well-built huts of grass near a pool of water, which we at once occupied as a halting-place for the night. The cart gave us considerable trouble. Not even our strongest donkey, though it carried with ease on its back a hundred and ninety-six pounds, could draw the cart with a load of only two hundred and twenty-five pounds weight. Early on the morning of the fifteenth we broke camp and started for Makesh. By 8.30 a.m. we were ascending the southern face of the Kira Peak. When we had gained the height of two hundred feet above the level of the surrounding country, we were gratified with a magnificent view of a land whose soil knows no Sabbath. After travelling the spine of a ridge abutting against the southern slope of Kira, we again descended into the little valley of Kirwima, the first settlement we meet in Udoi where there is always an abundant supply of water. Two miles west of Kirema is Makish. On the 16th we reached Ulagala, after a few hours' march. Ulagala is the name of a district, or a portion of a district, lying between the mountains of Uragura, which bound it southerly, and the mountains of Udoi, lying northerly in parallel with them, and but ten miles apart. The principal part of the basin thus formed is called Ulagala. Mohale is the next settlement, and here we found ourselves in the territory of Wasagua. On this march we were hemmed in by mountains, on our left by those of the Uragura, on our right by those of Udoa and Usagua, a most agreeable and welcome change to us after the long miles of monotonous level we had hitherto seen. When tired of looking into the depths of the forest that still ran on either side of the road, we had but to look up to the mountain's base, to note its strange trees, its plants, and vari-coloured flowers. We had but to raise our heads to vary this pleasant occupation by observing the lengthy and sinuous spine of the mountains, and mentally report upon their outline, their spurs, their projections and ravines, their bulging rocks and deep clefts and, above all, the dark green woods clothing them from summit to base. 
and when our attention was not required for the mundane task of regarding the donkey's packs, or the pace of the cautious stepping pagazis, it was grateful to watch the vapours play about the mountain summits, to see them fold into fleecy crowns and fantastic clusters, dissolve, gather together into a pool that threatened rain, and sail away again before the brightening sun. At Mahale was the fourth caravan under Maganga, with three more sick men, who turned with eager eyes to myself, the dispenser of medicine, as I approached. Salvos of small arms greeted me, and a present of rice and ears of Indian corn for roasting were awaiting my acceptance. But, as I told Maganga, I would have preferred to hear that his party were eight or ten marches ahead. At this camp also we met Salim bin Rashid, bound eastward, with a huge caravan carrying three hundred ivory tusks. This good Arab, besides welcoming the newcomer with a present of rice, gave me news of Livingstone. He had met the old traveller at Ujiji, had lived in the next but to him for two weeks, described him as looking old, with long grey moustaches and beard, just recovered from severe illness, looking very wan. When fully recovered, Livingstone intended to visit a country, called Manyama, by way of Morungu. The valley of the Ungarangari, with Mahale, exhibits wonderful fertility. Its crops of matama were of the tallest, and its Indian corn would rival the best crops ever seen in the Arkansas bottoms. The numerous mountain-fed streams rendered the great depth of loan very sloppy, in consequence of which several accidents occurred before we reached the camp, such as wetting cloth, mildewing tea, watering sugar, and rusting tools. But prompt attention to these necessary things saved us from considerable loss. There was a slight difference noticed in the demeanour and bearing of the Wasagua, compared with the Wadoe, Wakami, and Wukwe heretofore seen. There was none of that civility which we had been until now pleased to note. Their expressed desire to barter was accompanied with insolent hints that we ought to take their produce at their own prices. If we remonstrated, they became angry. Retorting fiercely, impatient of opposition, they flew into passion, and were glib in threats. This strange conduct, so opposite to that of the calm and gentle workwear, may be excellently illustrated by comparing the manner of the hot-headed Greek with that of the cool and collected German. Necessity compelled us to purchase eatables of them, and, to the credit of the country and its productions, be it said, their honey had the peculiar flavour of that of famed Hymettus. Following the latitudinal valley of the Ungarangari, within two hours on the following morning, we passed close under the wall of the capital of Usaga. Simbamweni. The first view of the walled town at the western foot of the Uguru Mountains, with its fine valley abundantly beautiful, watered by two rivers, and several pellucid streams of water, distilled by the dew and cloud-enriched heights around, was one that we did not anticipate to meet in eastern Africa. In Mazandaran, Persia, such a scene would have answered our expectations, but here it was totally unexpected. 
the town may contain a population of three thousand, having about one thousand houses. Being so densely crowded, perhaps five thousand would more closely approximate. The houses in the town are eminently African, but of the best type of construction. The fortifications are on an Arabic-Persic model, combining Arab neatness with Persian plan. Through a ride of 950 miles in Persia, I never met a town outside of the great cities better fortified than Simbamweni. In Persia, the fortifications were of mud. Even those of Kasfin, Tehran, Isfahan, and Shiraz. Those of Simbanweni are of stone, pierced with two rows of loopholes for musketry. The area of the town is about half a square mile, its plan being quadrangular. Well-built towers of stone guard each corner, four gates, one facing each cardinal point, and set halfway between the several towers, permit ingress and egress for its inhabitants. The gates are closed with solid square doors made of African teak, and carved with the infinitesimally fine and complicated devices of the Arabs, from which I suspect that the doors were made either at Zanzibar or on the coast, and conveyed to Simbamweni plank by plank. Yet, as there is much communication between Bagamoyo and Simbamweni, it is just possible that native artisans are the authors of this ornate worksmanship, as several doors chiselled and carved in the same manner, though not quite so elaborately, were visible in the largest houses. The palace of the Sultan is after the style of those on the coast, with long sloping roof, wide eaves, and veranda in front. The Sultana is the eldest daughter of the famous Kisabengo, a name infamous throughout the neighbouring countries of Udoi, Ukami, Ukwe, Kingaru, Ukwenai, and Kingaruwana, for his kidnapping propensities. Kisabengo was another Theodore on a small scale. Sprung from humble ancestry, he acquired distinction for his personal strength, his powers of harangue, and his amusing and versatile address, by which he gained great ascendancy over fugitive slaves, and was chosen a leader among them. Fleeing from justice, which awaited him at the hands of the Zanzibar Sultan, he arrived in Akami, which extended at that time from Ukwere to Usagara, and here he commenced a career of conquest. The result of which was the cession by the Wakami of an immense tract of fertile country, in the valley of the Ungarengari. On its most desirable site, with the river flowing close under the walls, he built his capital, and called it Simbamweni, which means the lion, or the strongest city. In old age the successful robber and kidnapper changed his name of Kisambengo, which gained such a notoriety, to Simbamweni, after his town. And when dying, after desiring that his eldest daughter should succeed him, he bestowed the name of the town upon her also, which name of Simbamweni the Sultana now retains and is known by. While crossing a rapid stream, which, as I said before, flowed close to the walls, the inhabitants of Simbamweni had a fine chance of gratifying their curiosity, 
of seeing the great Musungu, whose several caravans had preceded him, and who unpardonably, because unlicensed, had spread a report of his great wealth and power. I was thus the object of a universal stare. At one time, on the banks, there were considerably over a thousand natives going through the several tenses and moods of the verb to stare, or exhibiting every phrase of the substantive, viz., the stare peremptory, insolent, sly, cunning, modest, and casual. The warriors of the Sultana, holding in one hand the spear, the bow, and sheaf or musket, embraced with the other their respective friends. Like so many models of Nisus, and Eurylus, Theseus, and Pyrrhus, Damon, and Pythias, or Achilles, and Petroclus, to whom they confidently related their diverse opinions upon my dress and colour. The words, Musungu Kuba, had as much charm for these people as the music of the Pied Piper had for the rats of Hamlin, since they served to draw from within the walls, across their stream, so large a portion of the population. And when I continued the journey to the Ungarengari, distant four miles, I feared that the Hamlin catastrophe might have to be repeated before I could rid myself of them. But fortunately for my peace of mind, they finally proved vincible under the hot sun, and the distance we had to go to the camp. As we were obliged to overhaul the luggage and repair saddles, as well as to doctor a few of the animals, whose backs had by this time become very sore, I determined to halt here two days. Provisions were very plentiful also at Simbamwene, though comparatively dear. On the second day I was, for the first time, made aware that my acclimatization of the ague-breeding swamps of Arkansas was powerless against the Makungaroo of East Africa. The premonitory symptoms of the African type were felt in my system at 10 a.m. First, general lassitude prevailed, with a disposition to drowsiness. Secondly came the spinal ache, which, commencing from the loins, ascended the vertebrae, and extended around the ribs until it reached the shoulders, where it settled into a weary pain. Thirdly came a chilliness over the whole body, which was quickly followed by a heavy head, swimming eyes, and throbbing temples with vague vision, which distorted and transformed all objects of sight. This lasted until 10 p.m., and the Makungaroo left me, much prostrated in strength. The remedy, applied for three mornings in succession after the attack, was such as my experience in Arkansas had taught me was the most powerful corrective, viz., a quantum of fifteen grains of quinine, taken in three doses of five grains each, every other hour from dawn till meridian. The first dose to be taken immediately after the first effect of the purging medicine taken at bedtime the night previous. I may add that this treatment was perfectly successful in my case, and in all others which occurred in my camp. After the Makungaroo had declared itself, there was no fear, with such a treatment of it, of a second attack, until at least some days afterwards. On the third day the camp was visited by the ambassadors of Her Highness the Sultana 
of Simbamwene, who came as her representatives to receive the tribute which she regards herself as powerful enough to enforce. But they, as well as Madame Simbamwene, were informed that as we knew it was their custom to charge owners of caravans but one tribute, and as they remembered the Musungu, Farker, had paid already, it was not fair that I should have to pay again. The ambassadors replied, with a Nagemi, very well, and promised to carry my answer back to their mistress. Though it was by no means very well. In fact, as it will be seen in a subsequent chapter, how the female Simbamweni took advantages of an adverse fortune which befell me to pay herself. With this I close the chapter of incidents experienced during our transit across the maritime region. End of chapter 5, part 3